Chapter 1 of Vindication of the Rights of Woman This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft Chapter 1 The Rights and Involved Duties of Mankind Considered in the present state of society, it appears necessary to go back to first principles, in search of the most simple truths, and to dispute with some prevailing prejudice every inch of ground. To clear my way, I must be allowed to ask some plain questions, and the answers will probably appear as unequivocal as the axioms on which reasoning is built. Though, when entangled with various motives of action, they are formally contradicted, either by the words or conduct of men. In what does man's preeminence over the brute creation consist? The answer is as clear as that a half is less than the whole, in reason. What acquirement exalts one being above another? Virtue, we spontaneously reply. For what purpose were the passions implanted, that man by struggling with them might attain a degree of knowledge denied to the brutes, whispers experience. Consequently, the perfection of our nature and capability of happiness must be estimated by the degree of reason, virtue and knowledge that distinguish the individual and direct the laws which bind society, and that from the exercise of reason, knowledge and virtue naturally flow is equally undeniable, if mankind be viewed collectively. The rights and duties of man thus simplified, it seems almost impertinent to attempt to illustrate truths that appear so incontrovertible. Yet such deeply rooted prejudices have clouded reason, and such spurious qualities have assumed the name of virtues, that it is necessary to pursue the course of reason, as it has been perplexed and involved in error, by various adventitious circumstances, comparing the simple axiom with casual deviations. Men, in general, seem to employ their reason to justify prejudices which they have imbibed, they cannot trace how, rather than to root them out. The mind must be strong that resolutely forms its own principles, for a kind of intellectual cowardice prevails, which makes many men shrink from the task, or only do it by halves. Yet the imperfect conclusions thus drawn are frequently very plausible, because they are built on partial experience, on just though narrow views. Going back to first principles, Vice skulks with all its native deformity from close investigation. But a set of shallow reasoners are always exclaiming that these arguments prove too much, and that a measure rotten at the core may be expedient. Thus expediency is continually contrasted with simple principles, till truth is lost in a mist of words virtue in forms, and knowledge rendered a sounding nothing by the specious prejudices that assume its name. 
that the society is formed in the wisest manner, whose constitution is founded on the nature of man, strikes in the abstract every thinking being so forcibly that it looks like presumption to endeavour to bring forward proofs, though proof must be brought, or the stronghold of prescription will never be forced by reason. Yet to urge prescription as an argument to justify the depriving men or women of their natural rights is one of the absurd sophisms which daily insult common sense. The civilization of the bulk of the people of Europe is very partial. Nay, it may be made a question whether they have acquired any virtues in exchange for innocence, equivalent to the misery produced by the vices that have been plastered over unsightly ignorance, and the freedom which has been bartered for splendid slavery. The desire of dazzling by riches, the most certain preeminence that man can obtain, the pleasure of commanding flattering sycophants, and many other complicated low calculations of doting self-love, have all contributed to overwhelm the mass of mankind, and make liberty a convenient handle for mock patriotism. For whilst rank and titles are held of the utmost importance, before which genius, quote, must hide its diminished head, unquote, it is, with a few exceptions, very unfortunate for a nation when a man of abilities, without rank or property, pushes himself forward to notice. Alas, what unheard of misery have thousands suffered to purchase a cardinal's hat for an intriguing, obscure adventurer, who longed to be ranked with princes, or lord it over them by seizing the triple crown. Such, indeed, has been the wretchedness that has flowed from hereditary honours, riches, and monarchy, that men of lively sensibility have almost uttered blasphemy in order to justify the dispensations of providence. Man has been held out as independent of his power who made him, or as a lawless planet darting from its orbit to steal the celestial fire of reason, and the vengeance of heaven lurking in the subtile flame, sufficiently punished his temerity by introducing evil into the world. Impressed by this view of the misery and disorder which pervaded society, and fatigued with jostling against artificial fools, Rousseau became enamoured of solitude, and being at the same time an optimist, he labours with uncommon eloquence to prove that man was naturally a solitary animal. Misled by his respect for the goodness of God, who certainly, for what man of sense and feeling can doubt it, gave life only to communicate happiness, he considers evil as positive and the work of man, not aware that he was exalting one attribute at the expense of another, equally necessary to divine perfection. Reared on a false hypothesis, his arguments in favour of a state of nature are plausible, but unsound. I say unsound, for to assert that a state of nature is preferable to civilization in all its possible perfection, is, in other words, to arraign supreme wisdom, 
and the paradoxical exclamation that God has made all things right, and that evil has been introduced by the creature whom he formed, knowing what he formed, is as unphilosophical as impious. When that wise being, who created us and placed us here, saw the fair idea, he willed, by allowing it to be so, that the passions should unfold our reason, because he could see that present evil would produce future good. Could the helpless creature whom he called from nothing break loose from his providence and boldly learn to know good by practising evil without his permission? No. How could that energetic advocate for immortality argue so inconsistently? Had mankind remained forever in the brutal state of nature, which even his magic pen cannot paint as a state in which a single virtue took root, it would have been clear, though not to the sensitive, unreflecting wanderer, that man was born to run the circle of life and death, and adorn God's garden for some purpose which could not easily be reconciled with his attributes. But if, to crown the whole, there were to be rational creatures produced, allowed to rise in excellency by the exercise of powers implanted for that purpose, if benignity itself thought fit to call into existence a creature above the brutes, who could think and improve himself, why should that inestimable gift, for a gift it was if a man was so created as to have a capacity to rise above the state in which sensation produced brutal ease, be called in direct terms a curse? A curse it might be reckoned if all our existence was bounded by our continuance in this world. For why should the gracious fountain of life give us passions and the power of reflecting, only to embitter our days and inspire us with mistaken notions of dignity? Why should he lead us from love of ourselves to the sublime emotions which the discovery of his wisdom and goodness excites, if these feelings were not set in motion to improve our nature, of which they make a part, and render us capable of enjoying a more godlike portion of happiness. Firmly persuaded that no evil exists in the world that God did not design to take place, I build my belief on the perfection of God. Rousseau exerts himself to prove that all was right originally. A crowd of authors that all is now right, and I that all will be right. But, true to his first position, next to a state of nature, Rousseau celebrates barbarism, and, apostrophizing the shade of Fabricius, he forgets that, in conquering the world, the Romans never dreamed of establishing their own liberty on a firm basis, or of extending the reign of virtue. Eager to support his system, he stigmatizes as vicious every effort of genius, and uttering the apotheosis of savage virtues, he exalts those to demigods who were scarcely human, the brutal Spartans, who in defiance of justice and gratitude sacrificed in cold blood the slaves that had shown themselves men to rescue their oppressors. 
Disgusted with artificial manners and virtues, the citizen of Geneva, instead of properly sifting the subject, threw away the wheat with the chaff, without waiting to inquire whether the evils which his ardent soul turned from indignantly were the consequence of civilization or the vestiges of barbarism. He saw vice trampling on virtue, and the semblance of goodness taking place of the reality. He saw talents bent by power to sinister purposes, and never thought of tracing the gigantic mischief up to arbitrary power, up to the hereditary distinctions that clash with the mental superiority that naturally raises a man above his fellows. He did not perceive that the regal power, in a few generations, introduces idiotism into the noble stem, and holds out baits to render thousands idle and vicious. Nothing can set the regal character in a more contemptible point of view than the various crimes that have elevated men to the supreme dignity. Vile intrigues, unnatural crimes, and every vice that degrades our nature have been the steps to this distinguished eminence, yet millions of men have supinely allowed the nerveless limbs of the posterity of such rapacious prowlers to rest quietly on their ensanguined thrones. What but a pestilential vapour can hover over society when its chief director is only instructed in the invention of crimes or the stupid routine of childish ceremonies? Will men never be wise? Will they never cease to expect corn from tares and figs from thistles? It is impossible for any man, when the most favourable circumstances concur, to acquire sufficient knowledge and strength of mind to discharge the duties of a king entrusted with uncontrolled power. How then must they be violated when his very elevation is an insuperable bar to the attainment of either wisdom or virtue, when all the feelings of a man are stifled by flattery and reflection shut out by pleasure? Surely it is madness to make the fate of thousands depend on the caprice of a weak fellow-creature, whose very station sinks him necessarily below the meanest of his subjects. But one power should not be thrown down to exalt another, for all power intoxicates weak man, and its abuse proves that the more equality there is established among men, the more virtue and happiness will reign in society. But this, and any similar maxim deduced from simple reason, raises an outcry. The church or the state is in danger, if faith in the wisdom of antiquity is not implicit, and they who, roused by the sight of human calamity, dare to attack human authority, are reviled as despisers of God and enemies of man. These are bitter calumnies, yet they reached one of the best men, Dr. Price, whose ashes still preach peace, and whose memory demands a respectful pause when subjects are discussed that lay so near his heart. 
after attacking the sacred majesty of kings, I shall scarcely excite surprise by adding my firm persuasion that every profession in which great subordination of rank constitutes its power is highly injurious to morality. A standing army, for instance, is incompatible with freedom, because subordination and rigour are the very sinews of military discipline, and despotism is necessary to give vigour to enterprises that one will directs. A spirit inspired by romantic notions of honour, a kind of morality founded on the fashion of the age, can only be felt by a few officers, whilst the main body must be moved by command, like the waves of the sea. For the strong wind of authority pushes the crowd of subalterns forward, they scarcely know or care why, with headlong fury. Besides, nothing can be so prejudicial to the morals of the inhabitants of country towns as the occasional residence of a set of idle, superficial young men, whose only occupation is gallantry, and whose polished manners render vice more dangerous by concealing its deformity under gay ornamental drapery. An air of fashion, which is but a badge of slavery, and proves that the soul has not a strong individual character, awes simple country people into an imitation of the vices, when they cannot catch the slippery graces of politeness. Every corps is a chain of despots, who, submitting and tyrannizing without exercising their reason, become dead weights of vice and folly on the community. A man of rank or fortune, sure of rising by interest, has nothing to do but to pursue some extravagant freak, whilst the needy gentleman, who is to rise, as the phrase turns by his merit, becomes a servile parasite or vile panda. Sailors, the naval gentlemen, come under the same description, only their vices assume a different and a grosser caste. They are more positively indolent when not discharging the ceremonials of their station, whilst the insignificant fluttering of soldiers may be termed active idleness. More confined to the society of men, the former acquire a fondness for humour and mischievous tricks, whilst the latter, mixing frequently with well-bred women, catch a sentimental cant. But mind is equally out of the question whether they indulge the horse-laugh or the polite simper. May I be allowed to extend the comparison to a profession where more mind is certainly to be found, for the clergy have superior opportunities of improvement, though subordination almost equally cramps their faculties. The blind submission imposed at college to forms of belief serves as a novitiate to the curate who most obsequiously respects the opinion of his rector or patron, if he means to rise in his profession. Perhaps there cannot be a more forcible contrast than between the servile, dependent gait of a poor curate and the courtly mien of a bishop, and the respect and contempt they inspire render the discharge of their separate functions equally useless. 
it is of great importance to observe that the character of every man is in some degree formed by his profession. A man of sense may only have a cast of countenance that wears off as you trace his individuality, whilst the weak common man has scarcely ever any character but what belongs to the body. At least all his opinions have been so steeped in the vat consecrated by authority that the faint spirit which the grape of his own vine yields cannot be distinguished. Society, therefore, as it becomes more enlightened, should be very careful not to establish bodies of men who must necessarily be made foolish or vicious by the very constitution of their profession. In the infancy of society, when men were just emerging out of barbarism, chiefs and priests, touching the most powerful springs of savage conduct, hope and fear, must have had unbounded sway. An aristocracy, of course, is naturally the first form of government. But clashing interests soon losing their equipoise, a monarchy and hierarchy break out of the confusion of ambitious struggles, and the foundation of both is secured by feudal tenures. This appears to be the origin of monarchical and priestly power, and the dawn of civilization. But such combustible materials cannot long be pent up, and getting vent in foreign wars and intestine insurrections, the people acquire some power in the tumult, which obliges their rulers to gloss over their oppression with a show of right. Thus, as wars, agriculture, commerce, and literature expands the mind, despots are compelled to make convert corruption hold fast the power which was formerly snatched by open force. Footnote. Men of abilities scatter seeds that grow up, and have a great influence on the forming opinion, and when once the public opinion preponderates, through the exertion of reason, the overthrow of arbitrary power is not very distant. End of footnote. And this baneful lurking gangrene is most quickly spread by luxury and superstition, the sure dregs of ambition the indolent puppet of a court first becomes a luxurious monster or fastidious sensualist, and then makes the contagion which his unnatural state spreads the instrument of tyranny. It is the pestiferous purple which renders the progress of civilization a curse and warps the understanding, till men of sensibility doubt whether the expansion of intellect produces a greater portion of happiness or misery. But the nature of the poison points out the antidote, and had Rousseau mounted one step higher in his investigation, or could his eye have pierced through the foggy atmosphere which he almost disdained to breathe, his active mind would have darted forward to contemplate the perfection of man in the establishment of true civilization, instead of taking his ferocious flight back to the night of sensual ignorance. End of chapter 1